It is 7.26 a.m. in Northern California, which means it is afternoon 26 in England where you are, Graham Goodwin. I can't count good. My head... Three! Yeah, my head movies aren't good at this hour. My eyes haven't focused. I know wherever I am, you're at minimum eight hours plus. But regardless, it's a Thursday morning. I believe that is the official time in the ACO 24 Hours of Le Mans rules for sports car Q&A conversations to take place. So since we don't want to be placed into months of Parc Ferme and scrutinized <laughs> and rolled across the technical inspection pad where you know I will fail dimensionally, I'm well beyond the allowed dimensions for a sports car. I think we should comply with the ACO rules, Graham, and do the weekend sports car show on the day, the general time frame where our friends in France tell us it must happen. Am I on anything that's accurate or am I just on something? I think it's probably the latter. I'm hoping that's coffee and nothing more. As you might have heard in the background, just pouring myself one here. It is indeed uh, just going on to 3.30 in the afternoon here in the UK on a beautiful, what I guess is late spring, early summer's morning, uh, afternoon rather. But um, yeah, it uh, is spot on. Uh, I think what we don't want is any kind of equivalence of technology coming into this equation for next week's show. Uh, which means that you'd have to turn up and speak more slowly or speak more loudly. We don't want that. Um, I, th- I think we're, we're just at that kind of optimum setup, ready to go for the long haul. And uh, for this week's Week in Sports Cars podcast, um, have we said thank you to everybody yet? We haven't, but you do that on the backside because you love the backside. And I do it on the Ooh, front side. I am a front side lover. Oh. Yes. So <laughs> I'm going to say thank you to all of our questionnaires. Is that what we call them? I don't know. The folks who send in questions. Um, it's like Mouseketeers, but with questions about sports cars. Uh, definitely. TorontoMotorsports.com. They make so many fun things for us. T-shirts and you name it. Uh, I think Daniel Summersgill was asking about the uh, Peugeot 908 with Rocky, Rosie, and Oscar the Husky. Uh, Is that T-shirt available? I believe so. And if not, they'll make it for you. Justice Brothers. Oh, family. They're just family. They have been since I was a wee, wee lad in the 1980s. And also, finally, Cooper Tires. That's right. The Cooper Tires big supporters of our show. So let's get to the supporters of our show, Graham, with more than 2,306 words. And I say more than because I don't (laughs) know why I said more, but it's uh, 2,307 words. So uh, that's the total amount that we have for the week. We have about 75 minutes or so. Where shall we start since you are the official selector of categories for our show? Well, we are going to start with IMSA again. I think it's third year, third year, third week on the trot. I hate third that year. series. Why do we? Why? Really? Why do you do that to me? Oh, wait a minute! I covered. Yeah, I, I I'm just sorry. like dragging you down. Drag you down. That's uh, that. That's the uh, buzzing I can hear. Is that's John Doonan on the phone and that's your credential yanked. There you go. Um, <laughs> Nicholas Cahoots. I think he's in Cahoots. Um, how much do teams compromise on setup for a true AM driver in a GTD car? Do the resulting setups rob some outright speed when the factory pros step in? Yes. One of the tricks of the trade, Nicholas. One of the reasons we have a phrase like sneaky silver, super silver, uh, bombastic bronze. That isn't one. I just made that up. But 
one of the reasons that in pro-am lineups, teams absolutely seek out the highest qualified am to place alongside their pro is to eradicate the exact scenario you're speaking of here. We're talking normal sports car races in that capacity, though, Nicholas. If we're looking at a Rolex 24 where you could have four drivers, five maybe, you could have a number of drivers well beyond your full-season pairing, uh, it's not uncommon for that third, fourth, in rare occasion, occasions, fifth driver, be a little bit farther off from uh, the, the full-season lineup that you have. And so in those instances, at those longer races where you might stack a few extra bodies into the car, uh, yeah, there might be a little bit of extra compromise. Not because you want to, but if someone's bringing money and they say, look, I can't drive it, right? I mean, I can get it around the track, but we're going to be slow and I'm going to be a liability. That's where you'll see a greater compromise on setup. So you just tend to do things that are a little softer, right? Could be softer springing, slightly softer anti-roll control, just making the car a little bit more supple, not doing anything super harsh where you just breathe on the steering wheel and it snaps and changes direction. Well, that's what a pro can handle. Not necessarily something a real am uh, can deal with lap after lap. So in most instances, yes, there is some sort of compromise where the car is not at its true peak capability uh, as derived by the setup. It's something where it is slightly detuned, but that that grading, Nicholas, of how much it's detuned is really based on the skill of the AM. There's also one other little factor here that's kind of sort of fun, maybe, since we're talking about cars and technical stuff, but this is really a human thing. The grade of the pro in, in their ability to accept that they're not going to have a car that they know is capable of achieving its maximum potential lap time. That's something to factor in as well. There are some pros who deal with this a little bit better than others. There are some who stay in a state of frustration knowing that while they're going to go out and get 100% from the car in that setup state, that it's still not actually as sharp and as quick as it could be. It's just been interesting to see the pros who can just say, look, this is what it is. I'm going to be Juan Montoya, who I think was just bought by a media outlet, by the way, Graham. Um, yes, he has. He's been purchased outright. Yes. Uh, so you will get some who will do the old, it is what it is. They'll deal with it. You could just get some others who bristle a little bit. Because in their mind, they always have to be the fastest pony. They don't ever want to have to let up just a little bit or have something that isn't to the absolute maximum. So that tends to be the newer pros that come in often. Not uncommon for them to come out of single-seater racing, Graham, where it's all about them, and it's all about making the car perfect for them. Just interesting to see that mental adjustment. And over time, you tend to see those single-seaters who might wow you with their individual performances actually start to become pretty awesome teammates once they realize, okay, 
I have to accept that this car is going to be at 98% of its maximum capability. It's all I'm going to get out of it. And I can't let the fact that it's not what I consider to be perfect. Can't let that detune my brain and me mentally. It's an interesting one, isn't it? And as you know, um, pro-am crews bed in over a season, two seasons, three seasons, the skill level of the true am driver comes up, then you will see significantly more pace coming out, not just because the am driver is getting quicker, but because the pro driver can unlock more of the potential as well. Uh, Nicholas pu- pushes on with a not dissimilar question. Um, he says that uh, front engine GTD cars seem to have an advantage, he says, at mid-Ohio. Is there a non-BOP-ness reason for this? Was it just a confluence of particular driver skills matching up to the circuits? Weather? What? Why were the front-engine cars so darn good? I don't know. If I put more thought into it and was more awake, I could probably give you a really good answer. I don't have one. So instead of trying to come up with one, I'm just going to say, send this one back in, Nicholas, in the very near future, and I will put my brain on. But it's partially warm at the moment. We can tell you. We can tell you it's nothing whatsoever to do with the quality of the press room. Um, and that's a reference. <laughs> <laughs> did you get a call from Midahari after last week's show? I bet you did. No, they <laughs> no, they tried, but uh, they tried doing it via <laughs> Skype, Zoom, you name it, failed. The connection failed. Uh, they couldn't get a mobile signal out. So, no, what I'm waiting on uh-huh. is a letter. I believe what I'm going to get is a tersely worded letter. Uh, again, I love the I love them. I do, and I actually love going to Mid Ohio. So again, there's everything I said is accurate. I mean, it's it's part. I'll just do it up front. It's total shit. It's total garbage. But it's my garbage. I love it. I mean, it, I've said before the the paddock uh, bathroom. It is the equivalent of a 1800s uh, western movie. Like I, it almost I think close to literally has swinging saloon doors. That's how old it is. Creaky old wood and oh my god! But it's ours. There was there was what I I meant to mention um, last week and didn't, uh, which was British GT when in the days when we went to Castle Coombe and they had a variety of um, solutions for this big race meeting for them. One of which was this kind of double layered trailer. Uh, and to reach the the upper um, room of this trailer, you had to literally climb up a ladder to get into the press room. It was like climbing onto a particularly tall locomotive. But, um, yeah, there you go. Right, let's move on. Let's move on, and let's have a look at some LMDH questions. Brian Cohn says, with the coming custom LMDH cars from Porsche, have you heard any rumblings from owners or teams thinking of moving up from LMP2, LMP3, or GTD? Yes. Next question. Uh, yes, Brian, I have. The interesting thing we're going to find out about here sometime very soon, I hope. I don't know if it's going to be very soon, but we know they've said, they've confirmed, they've told you, me, everyone else I can think of that reports on sporty cars. We're doing customer cars. Going to do a decent amount. Not going to lose our mind, though, year one. But, yes, we're definitely in on that game. I have heard, I don't want to say from, because that that might not paint things totally accurately, but I know of uh, some of the 
classes you've mentioned here on the IMSA side. Uh, some teams being very interested in joining in, hoping that they will get one of the prized customer cars from Porsche. So there's an interesting thing happening as well, though, Graham, which is where maybe it's the... It's going to be interesting to see how IMSA's formation of GTD Pro possibly impacts some of Mm. those P whatever class or GTD class entrants right now who were maybe thinking all in on this LMDH thing if a manufacturer, not limiting it to Porsche, but hey, if these things get made available to customers, yeah, they're not going to be cheap, but hey, we're already spending a fair amount of money. Uh, You know, we're not going to have to go too much farther budget-wise to get there. Oh, Grant, I take that back. It's going to be a lot more expensive, but you're already spending a lot of money as it is. So it's not like you're going from, oh, this is really cheap and affordable to, oh, my God, it's crazy. It's all crazy. It's just what shade of crazy you're willing to tolerate. Bright crimson. crimson. Yes. The uh, introduction of GTD Pro, Brian, I just think that's an interesting wrinkle that could have some teams that were thinking without maybe knowing the price point, some other stuff. Hey, if we can, LMDH and a customer name the brand, that, that might be pretty cool. I think GTD Pro might be something that actually takes a couple, not a lot, but a couple of potential LMDH entrants off the board. So that's really where my curiosity is, is going to remain for a while just to see where things go. Cause trust me, if you're running P2, P3, GTD and want to go to GTD pro, it's a step up, but I don't think an insane step up by any means financially. If that, yeah, it's an interesting. I was yep. just going to say, it's, if that LMDH customer thing's still an option, uh, that might be a pretty good investment for some teams too. If there are some teams that have the super wealthy uh, gentleman, gentlewoman driver, or whatever highly contributing sponsor, and you can get a hold of a Acura, Audi, Porsche, Cadillac, uh, etc., uh, LMDH and then sit on that after you're done racing it, and hopefully it's not destroyed. Uh, But in particular, probably those German marks, if you can sit and hold that, uh, (laughs) I think that's going to be a very valuable piece in the future as well. So I don't know if I'd say the same thing about your GTD Pro machine in terms of vintage market. I guess the other thing here is it effectively is your ticket not only to a full season in the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, but a ticket to Le Mans. There's no doubt in my mind that the the way in which those those entries are determined is going to have to change in this era. And we've not heard anything about that yet in terms of exactly what entitlement or what chance uh, an LMDH priority team will have of getting the used to be a fax, but I'm sure it's an email now with we or not um, on selection day. So that's the other thing to take into account about the value because whatever else, you know, you've got your competition Porsche, competition Audi, competition whatever, um, will have value from being that car. It'll have further value with the provenance that's earned 
at, in the IMSA Weather Tech Sports Car Championship, but then turbocharged that provenance by the fact it is a car that has started, finished, won, been successful at Le Mans 24 hours. That's when you start getting into the really serious money. So move on. I'm more on uh, LMDH. Kevin Pires, uh, Federico asked some questions about which teams we think might be. I don't think we're going to get into which teams we're talking to at this point, Kevin. But suffice it to say, I think uh, we're expecting some current teams, perhaps some teams that aren't currently on the IMSA uh, roster and maybe some uh, some other names to kind of pop up in that kind of regard. But let's move on to Mark Whitelick, who says, what's the likelihood of a Lexus DPI program? Uh, after all the comments from other sources, he says, other sources? You listen to other people, dear me. No, that's Juan Montoya. He's, he's now oh, taken oh, over all reporting. Yes. Uh, that's it. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be you know, an opinion fest, isn't it? Um, is it still on the cards, or is it just one of those rumors? Well, our dear friend Mark, I would urge you to visit racer.com, not racist.com, but racer.com. Completely uh, different. I contribute to both. Uh, okay, I can finally admit it here. Uh, I would <laughs> encourage you to visit racer.com. Might have been two months ago. I don't know. I don't remember the timeline, but had a long interview with Toyota Racing Development President Dave Wilson on this subject, as well as. Uh, Lexus GTD slash GTD Pro, as he expressed it, certainly DPI slash LMDH, a prototype IMSA-related program, been on the radar for a while. We've all known that. That's never been a secret. He did say, yeah, of course, we've been asked to look at and evaluate something with LMDH, but that would be something... For the future. And I know that LMDH isn't here. So of course when they do arrive in 2023. As we speak right now. That's the future. He wasn't talking about 2023. By any means. Nor was he committing to anything. But he was definitely saying. Yeah we are going to focus on. GT3 base racing. For the immediate future. With really nothing else planned. In terms of introducing a. a new racing program in sports cars so impossible for a lexus lmdh no something that i would think if it were to happen would be before i don't even know what year graham 24 25 26 Mm -hmm. they have a new they have a replacement for their rcf gt3 coming Uh, again i don't know the exact timeline 23 2024 somewhere in there that is what dave said is their true full focus for Lexus and sports cars right now. Get that new road-based vehicle on track. Get that in motion. Then something else might be possible afterwards, but nothing they're willing to commit to right now. So everything I said about going to racer.com and reading it, I think I just kind of paraphrased it all. But he had a lot of really interesting stuff to say. Dave's awesome. So uh, still pay a visit if you can. Um, let's move on to Lamborghini. Philip Clark says, uh, with Lamborghini potentially entering into LMDH, what are the chances we might get to hear a V12 at Le Mans again? Would it be amazing if this type of engine made it from the VAG portfolio into their prototype race car? All we hear is that there is a interest of having the uh, the baby bull 
having that bowl involved in LMDH. Uh, we would love to hear the V12 because it's my all-time favorite racing engine architecture and the sounds that come from them are the best of ever. Not a chance, though. Uh, yep. Just not a chance. The way the... The way the rules are written for LMDH, as I have been told by very smart engineer, engine guru types at um, manufacturers who are or will be involved, have said that a long engine like a V12 is going to be basically impossible to wedge in due to the dimensional rules, uh, crank height requirement and such. So... A V10, I have been told, is really considered to be a bridge too far. That's why the only thing I've heard of in terms of engine options in LMDH is something from four cylinders to eight cylinders. I've not heard of anything beyond eight cylinders being planned by any manufacturer. I wouldn't say it's because they some might lack a desire to do more than eight, but the rules just really would not favor, uh, if not just allow uh, that based on where and how and why and everything from a dimension standpoint, that engine is meant to live in that space. So uh, what I've heard, what I've written, uh, what end of last year, Graham, uh, when we had the Porsche and the Audi announcement, LDH was I'd heard, and this was real. This wasn't just, you know, supposition based on idiocy that Audi was looking to use, very seriously considering using their turbocharged four-cylinder DTM motor and developing that into an endurance beast. Porsche looking to develop a twin-turbo V8 version of, I think it's Cayenne motor or one of the, whatever engine code would be, correct to name for their SUVs. Uh, I've since heard, and I think wrote in the last thing that I put out uh, about their choice of Multimatic as the chassis supplier, which again, you and I believe both called a really long time ago, is the plan we've heard. Keep in mind, no one's confirming this officially, but I don't have a lot of doubt at this moment that it is what it is, that a twin-turbo V8 will be the single solution across all Volkswagen group LMDH programs. So whatever badge is on that Multimatic chassis coming from this company, it's going to have a twin turbo V8 in it. So in theory, uh, Lamborghini would indeed be a twin turbo V8. So something would have to change to that plan in order for that to be different. Let's push on a bit. Um, Thomas Smets says, how big a chance now is there that IMSA would allow the hypercars, the LMH cars, join the big four races? If Le Mans can do both, says Thomas, why couldn't they do it for Daytona and Sebring? He says he thought he'd heard something in the past. He says, uh, we know better than he does. Smiling face with smiling eyes, uh, Twisk. Uh, I think it's Thomas, a first-timer for us here. Uh, not a name I can remember. If you are, Thomas, you're very welcome. Do you want to take this one, Graham? Because I feel like I've answered it enough times that you would do this question better service for our new questionnaire, Thomas Smets. Uh, Thomas, I, I share your um, wish to see them stateside. I think the the reality is 
that IMSA would be looking at the very least to see that the LMDH cars and the LMH cars can be effectively balanced. Um, that's not going to happen before 2023 when we get the first of the factory and we hope privateer cars into uh, WC service alongside the, to by then Toyota, the Peugeot, we hope still the Glickenhaus and the Ferrari that debuts that year. IMSA have made it pretty clear that they'd be looking to ensure that there's a good enough balance been done between those very different ideas of cars and the LMDH cars that form the vanguard of their new wave before an active consideration of introducing those into their own competition uh, in North America. I think that's still correct, is it not, MP? believe so, yeah. Yeah. I I mean, the, so I think the answer here is there is a will amongst a lot of people involved here for this to happen. It is fair to say that it's been treated with some skepticism from IMSA in the past. What they don't want to do is to effectively ruin their own plan um, for, you know, three or four major teams coming to play on their uh, biggest playing fields. Um, how would I equate to this? Uh, th- this is going to have to work in the WEC first. We're going to have to see cars of you know very different uh, mechanical makeup um, competing head to head effectively over substantial part of a full season for this to be, I think, a realistic um, prospect uh, at Daytona, at Sebring, at Watkins Glen, at Petit Le Mans, at least. Uh, I hope that happens. But there's now a lot of pressure on the people that crunch the numbers for the BOPness between the uh, LMH and LMDH cars. And that's hashtag BOPness, B O P N E S S. So, yes. right, you and your dirty minds thinking we were saying something bad. Come on now. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, as IMSA's been fairly consistent in saying, Thomas, y'all with your hypercars are going to get a decent head start on us with our lmdhs obviously i'm referring to things in an hours and theirs we know that in the wc both will be eligible immediately knowing that the lmdh is coming in 2023 but their plan is the minute they're ready come on in let's play imsa has just taken a different approach saying yes quote our cars going to be ready to go two years after yours so you're going to have a head start we're not keen on having our new cars uh, go through whatever teething pains or our trying to benchmark their performance while having you come in with cars that are fully ready to go. And we're still not sure where our cars are capable of competing, you know, performance uh, peak and whatnot. So we're going to want to take a little bit of time to get our own stuff figured out before we introduce y'all and your hot and ready vehicles. So that's the, the general mindset. I've not heard that mindset changing even with the spa debut for hypercars not being as glorious as maybe we had hoped. So where, uh, you know, I was going to ask, where else should we go? I'm just going to politely suggest we go somewhere else. So you tell me which category you want to go to. Well, let's let's go for Wick Wick Aslam's Elms and Echo. Uh, Let's do that. And uh, because we've actually just mentioned uh, Wick Aslam's Elms, um, it is, as we record this, the final day in the office today for Cyril Teshvalen at uh, the Asian mm. Le series. And I know he does listen in uh, because it, it, he tends to, I think, mute out the bits that have got me in it because he's sick and tired of my voice. But uh, just He mutes me as well, though. So what does he listen to if it 
Is it all? It's just white noise. Okay, or white maybe noise. the cats and the dogs. That's what he's listening for. Yeah, maybe for. that's just it. Maybe that's just it. Um, I just wanted to say, hey, boss, um, it's been a hell of a ride. And whatever comes next, keep us posted. Let us know. And, um, uh, it, you know, whatever is next on the agenda, I'm sure for Serial, it will bring a great deal of pleasure to us and to our listeners for many years to come. And we will see you in a paddock some, somewhere soon. Um, let's go with the questions, MP. Stuart Hart at Jag hey. Le Mans. I'm glad it's just Jag because if I pronounced it in our standard Jag. Americanism, Jaguar. Oh, boy. The, the letters oh, yeah. no. along with the grumpy mid-Ohio <laughs> letter they're going to be pouring in. Says, uh, Stuart says, further to last week's discussion about qualifying, the FIWC actively looking into revising their format. The single driver format at Spa was a big improvement on the average lap time nonsense, but we need a 30-minute to one-hour session when more top-class teams arrive. Uh, make it a must-watch. And then Daniel Summersgill, there's a couple little things here on qualifying yep. hyperpole session was exciting but could be more improved. Looking at some of the, the shades and shadows thrown in on this thread from Daniel and then Richard Cooper below. Enlighten us. Uh, Richard mentions Indy 500 qualifying. Give us some thoughts. What do you think, Graham? Um, they've only just changed to this new format. I tend to agree that I think it needs a longer show, and I think that's exactly the, the word we need to use here. That's what it is. It is something to show off the ultimate performance of the cars that we've got. I think everybody involved on the competition side, on the event side, is fully well aware of the opportunities that come with the names that we know that are coming into the sports. I think there's an awful lot of potential on the table for change. Um, I, I've said this once or twice on, on the weekend sports cars, which is never underestimate the power of positive feedback. Tell them what you like. Tell them what you like, what you would like, um, and it will get listened to. It, it might may not ultimately make a difference. You know, I think what you need to kind of concentrate on is think about the visual, think about how this looks on TV, how it looks trackside. They're the things that are most important, I think, in terms of building the numbers that will determine whether or not something's a success or not. I happen to like. Uh, the single qualifying thing. We talked about this last week, didn't we, MP, about the single shots or the two shots uh, qualifying format. That works in some regards. Whether or not it would work in the WEC, I think, is open to debate. It certainly works the Nürburgring 24 hours. It's one of my favorite parts of that event, the uh, the qualifying um, top 20 now, I think. Um, but are they open to change? 100% they are. They do want to make it better. As I've said more than once, I thought Hyperpole, when it was first um, uh, unveiled, I thought it sounded terrible, and I was wrong. Uh, I was there to watch it and there to commentate on it, and I thought it was truly, truly exciting. Um, had a long conversation uh, with someone involved in the Rebellion Racing program uh, in recent weeks, and all I can tell you, MP, is... Had they chosen to approach Hyperpole in a different manner, I 100% guarantee you that the all-time record holder for a long time would not have been a Tota. Hmm. There was a lot of time in that car. 
you will remember young Gustav Amenezes uh, rattled the um, the window frames of the Toyota with his effort in Hyperpole uh, last year. I am as certain as I possibly can be without having had the opportunity to look in there with an endoscope that that car was running on pretty close to full tanks. Wow. There Crazy you go. Crazy talk. Crazy talk. All right, let's see. Where else shall we go here? Uh, uh, Stathis Coco. I'm in love with my Coco. Are we expecting an overfilled list of announcements on the Friday press uh, presser at Le Mans this year regarding, of course, programs that must only be whispered, at least for now? So what do you think? Are we announcing uh, the new Lada LMDH? Uh, what's going on? Uh, they'll certainly be stocking up some good stuff um, with no doubt about that whatsoever. Amongst the things that we know we're expecting updates on, we're expecting an update on the um, the machinations of the ACO and WC on what the future of the GT classes are going to be. That's due uh, anytime soon. Uh, I'm expecting them to be announcing officially what the plan is for the hydrogen regulations and whether or not we get more meat on the bones there. Maybe that a little early. Um, we've got multiple potential uh, opportunities at Le Mans for the incoming factory teams, and that includes Peugeot, of course, this year. Um, might well want to show something off. Ferrari for the following year. Porsche have been moving along as of Audi. Uh, there are others too there waiting in the wings. Do I think it's out of the scale of possibility that we might see a major announcement from major manufacturers? I'm not aware that one is due uh, in June, um, but they certainly have used the opportunity of the main press conference at the Le Mans 24 Hours to do so in the recent past. Uh, in fact, Peugeot with the 908, the uh, the announcement or the, the reveal, if you like, of the engine uh, was done at the Le Mans press conference. Um, it comes back against that is to this this place we're in now where it's they're almost it feels almost like people are beginning to form, a, form an orderly queue to give us exciting news. Uh, I will admit that it's possibly not been it's been more of a trickle than the flow that we were hoping for. But I think a lot of that comes down to the tricky decisions that have got to be made about GT. Uh, the fact that we are in a pandemic for about a year longer than people, I think, initially expected, that's delayed things without a shadow of a doubt. So, you know, I think we will see that the plus side of that, I think the f that the fact that it's a trickle will mean that we will continue to see programs announced not just in year one but year two and hopefully in year three as well so i think that's a good thing we've not got 25 manufacturers at le mans um in year one uh of the lmdh uh, um rule set that hopefully what we get uh, new names coming in in year two and hopefully in year three uh, beyond that but will it be a busy friday yes it will be a busy friday um I love the news side of things, but God, that does make for a very long week uh, without a shadow of a doubt. And it's quite a packed week this week, uh, this year, of course, with the uh, test day being on the weekend before the race. So it'll be a full nine day uh, race week for us again uh, with that one. So um, we'll, we will hashtag wait and see. But yes, I'm expecting it to be multiple points of interest. You know, the thing that 
I wonder if it's going to play into items at all, Graham, is knowing that you've had Lamar push back for the second consecutive year instead of falling in that traditional mid-June window. It's only two months and one week in terms of a delay. But I do wonder if some manufacturers that are kind of really wanting to, whether it's a new program or some facet, hey, we've hired some driver, whatever it is, some sort of interesting news, wonder if all will hold until almost the end of August, you know, nearly getting into September to announce that news, or if we might actually get a little bit of mid-June normal Lamar time frame announcing. Just cur- I'm not saying I, I have any knowledge of that, no. but I'm just curious if no. some will say, you know what, why wait? Plus, it's wide open right now, so let's do it. Um, I do think we're going to hear a LMDH confirmation, possibly at the Detroit IndyCar slash IMSA weekend, knowing that uh, General Motors, that is their home race, their global headquarters is within, I mean, it doesn't cast a true shadow. It's a little bit too far away, but mm-hmm. yeah, the, the Renaissance Center is right there in sight from Belle Isle. Uh, I do wonder if here in about two and a half weeks or whatever the exact timing is, we're going to hear news from our friends at GM. Uh, it's what the weekend of the 12th, 13th, I think 11th through 13th of June. So part of me thinks that we might be getting this kind of what's becoming the worst kept secret. Um, I think we're going to have our fourth confirmed LMDH manufacturer coming soon. And boy, wouldn't it be smart to do that on the weekend that truly celebrates everything about General Motors. Uh, let's see. Uh, yes, 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 it would. The one final thing I'd say, by the way, anybody listening in from PR, uh, PR uh, departments of manufacturers, please do let us know before you have those reveals. So at least we've got five minutes to think about it because you're, you're, one thing status points towards here. Le Mans is phenomenally busy. I'd, I'd love to do more justice to the things that are being announced there, but you are generally and genuinely running from one thing to another for an entire week. It's a bit like your month at India, I'm sure, MP. And, you know, it's, um, yeah, trust us, we're not going to ruin your day, but uh, do help us to help you. I could cite an exact instance of that, having seen a press release. Uh, actually related to a driver we've already mentioned, uh, which just landed four minutes ago. And yeah, mm-hmm. hey, if the deal, if the sponsor deal was signed yesterday, totally understand. If this is something you've had in the works that have known about a little bit, dropping it Thursday morning, a couple days before the race, when everyone's already flat out trying to get stuff Not that small. they did a week ago or tried to get done a week ago that they're catching up on. It's like, hey, I get you need to. I know you need to put out a press release, but if you are had the opportunity to do it earlier, let us know. We might be able to help you. But here on a Thursday morning, a couple days before the Indy 500, uh, sorry, buddy, my to-do list is already stupidly long. Uh, where else do you want to go here? Do you want to go Malcolm Scopes? Um, Malcolm Scopes is a good one. Quite like that. Okay. He says, do you think any manufacturers will move to LMH? as a direct result of the limited availability or potential clashes with rival manufacturers supplying LMDH chassis. 
It's an interesting I am one. Not a, uh, it, it is an interesting one. I'm not aware of a single one that is citing that or uh, thinking about that in that way, uh, Malcolm. There, there are certainly LMDH chassis manufacturers that have got multiple prospects still on the go. Um, that's not just the VHE multiple brands. There are others that have got um, confirmed customers and other potential customers, let's put it that way. And, of course, the way in which they uh, put kind of walls between those programs is going to be an interesting challenge for those chassis manufacturers. Not the first time they've had to have done it. Uh, the likes of Delara, the likes of Orica, the likes of Ligier, as well as Multimatic. Uh, but no, I'm not aware that that's a reason why. For the most part, my understanding is that it's about displaying their prowess with the electrified part of the powertrain. That's why uh, Toyota went that direction. That's absolutely why uh, Peugeot have gone that direction, particularly due to the battery tech that's being used there. In the case of Ferrari, we, I think, are tending towards the view that that's to do with the fact they want it to be a bespoke Ferrari chassis. That's always been their tradition. Uh, but I'm sure, again, the opportunity to show off their Kurs tech um, has been another attraction there. So, uh, good question, but no, I don't think that's been one of the motivating factors. When I hear the word bespoke, I just think of a word that whenever I say it, it makes me feel smart. I don't know why, but I love that word. <laughs> and it's such a sports car thing. I realize that you hear it in F1 as well, but IndyCar, uh, NASCAR, this is a kind of NHRA, I don't know, dumb American racing. We don't hear bespoke a lot. So I just feel great, like great we, we raised the value of our podcast with a single mention of a single word by you, <laughs> Graham Goodwin. <laughs> am I drunk already or am I drunk on exhaustion? No, too no. early, surely. All right. What are we doing with any of the remaining uh, Weck, Aslam, Elms, Aco uh, questions? Are I we moving ask, on? I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you to ask me the one that's uh, there by Fred or B at Dope to the Gills. Uh, okay, I'm going to scroll. Oh, here we go. Uh, is it true Bentley is coming? Well, do you want me to read the question as it's written? Sure. Is it true Bentley is coming? It, whack, in 2023. Right. So the answer is that's a direct relation to a story i wrote in the last week on daily sports car and thank you for taking note of that this is a good read one it buckle in for this yeah. one listeners read it really carefully so um do you want me to tell the story about the um about the magazine running tell the, the whole thing like spill all the beans okay. are being spilled so i so i wake up i think it was either the following morning maybe the morning after to a flurry of messages and social media posts citing an australian magazine saying that the bentley ceo had and i quote rubbished 2023 le mans rumors quote um took a look at that said uh, article and uh, a online and i believe print as well aussie general interest uh, motoring magazine and immediately the alarm bells rang. Um, found the phone number, rang the cell phone of said journalist and asked one question. Did the Bentley CEO read my story and comment to you? Or did the Bentley CEO give you those comments sometime before I wrote that story? Because and we should just mention no disrespect to any of our no. journalist friends, of which we have many in Australia. Lots. But if we're thinking <laughs> Bentley 
CEO making comments, uh, shutting down a report about the brand looking to do something in motor racing. I would Uh, expect that. More particularly, rubbishing 2023. Now, the only story that I can find on the web that talks about Bentley in 2023 is indeed my story. You can't write that someone has rubbished something they've not seen. So just Uh, the point being, I would think a CEO of, I don't know, a fairly well-known and reputed company like Bentley might be made to domestic media first. Um, So the the landing in Australia first struck me as the first little bit of a red herring. Right, well, let's put it this way. So moving away from all that, and we parted friends. Can we just say that? Yeah. Headline was changed. Social media posts were amended or removed, et cetera, et cetera. And we all learned something from that experience. Let's put it that way. Um, so what is going on? There are lots of different ways in which you can run a, in parentheses, works program. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it is the factory spending the money. They do have to approve it for an LMDH program. There's no doubt whatsoever about that. But there are lots of ways in which a program like that can run. Um, what I've written, and I wrote, I chose the words in that story incredibly carefully. So to answer the question, is it true they're coming to the WEC in 2023? It isn't true at the moment. It might become true. Um, it might become true that they come in 2024, but the basis of the story is this MP. 2024 is a very important year in Bentley's competition history. It will be the centenary of their first win at the Le Mans 24 Hours. As it has been relayed to me by more than one very credible source, uh, those that are behind this potential program are looking to be in competition in 2023 as a preparation for a full tilt at Le Mans in 2024. That's the point here. And the second uh, part of the point, which I think was referred to kind of uh, as a sidebar a little earlier in the IMSA questions, was the other part that came out of this is the relatively small number of customer cars from Multimatic that will be available in 2023, which would mean that if you were going to enter something as a Bentley, bodies as a Bentley, badged as a Bentley, homologated as a Bentley, approved by Bentley, you are likely to have to do that on the basis of one of the available customer Porsche slash Audis. That was the the nub of the point here. So could it happen? Yes. Am I confirming it's going to happen? That's not my place and no. Is this real? It absolutely uh, is a real prospective uh, program. Have I had anybody calling me really, really, really angry and denying fulsomely that it's going on? Not one person. Not one person has done that, okay? And I would expect, if I've got something so terribly badly wrong that there's not a iota of truth about it, that I'd be getting a call in minutes, not hours. So the reality here is this is a prospective entry. It would have to happen with the blessing of Bentley. It need not necessarily mean that is that Bentley are solely funding that effort. It is one of those interesting sidebars here in uh, LMDH and the hypercar program for the FIWEC that I think will be a narrative that follows us through. It won't be the only one, by the way. There are other people looking to all sorts of interesting things with this formula. You might well find that there are other names, other badges kind of emerging 
through this process that perhaps at the moment we're not quite expecting. So all sorts of prospects, MP, that could come out of this one. So final answer to the question, I sincerely hope that those who would like to, to achieve this program get to their aim and Bentley comes, comes back into competition, whether or not that being 23 or 24. Is it confirmed? No, but that's not what the story says. Uh, as always with these things, it's a bit like uh, you said a little earlier, MP, to do with the, uh, the Lexus thing. When we sit and write a thousand words about a program like this, 500 words about a program like this, because you're treading carefully around that your sources information, confidences that you actually they're there keeping about things you do know. Number one, it is highly unlikely that that story is going to tell you everything that we know. Number two, read it really carefully because the wording has been chosen very carefully indeed to reflect exactly where we know and or believe those programs to be. So just to recap timeline, reporter in Australia interviews or gets quote or whatever from Bentley CEO downplaying, rubbishing this racing plan before you write your story. You write your story. In fairness, what he said was, um, that uh, there were that that the prospects of going to Le Mans um, were untrue at that point. But the whole and this, but, but, as but we mind, know, reporters, yep. writers don't depending on the outlet, but most don't write headlines. Most don't do that stuff. So it was the headline, which was a little aggressive and appearing to be pushing oh, yeah. back on your reporting. Probably wasn't the handiwork of that reporter, but just from a timeline standpoint, a little bit cheeky in that these were old oh, yeah. quotes being used and posted to downplay, if not dismiss your reporting. It wasn't actual, that, hey, that, that, we read this from the daily sports car guy, not hourly sports car, so he's a little bit lazy, just does it once a day, apparently. <laughs> um, can you comment on that? Bentley CEO says words, disputes. No, it was the opposite, so... Yeah, a little cheeky. So, so it, it is, uh, I think, uh, exactly that. I, mean, I think to, to, to try to put a bit of meat on the bones here, think, uh, dear listeners, about the current FIA World Endurance Championship. There is a car, it happens to be in GTM this season, that uh, is entered under the name Aston Martin Racing. Ask yourself for just a quick sweet moments how much money aston martin is putting into that program i can tell you that the answer is a very round number indeed in fact it's the roundest of all numbers um ask yourself how that then happens okay so we're we're talking about not a a full works funded program uh, but if you like a works blessed program there we go well are we moving on? Are we staying? What are we doing, my friend? Uh, what do you, there, won't you, pick, won't you pick one more that you like here? Let's have a quick look. You know, our, my do, pal do, Jeremiah Morell uh, from Indianapolis says, Graham, when am I going to get a WC race in Indianapolis? Do we need to file a formal request with Mr. Penske? I don't know if that's the one you're going to take, but I figure we might be able to answer that uh, one quickly. I think I think we'll do that one really quickly. The answer is, uh, yeah, as uh, MP has actually spoken on the show a couple of times before about this, 
is that was considered. Um, and in the the BP days, and by BP, I don't mean British Petroleum, petroleum I mean um, before Penske uh, days at the International, uh, Indianapolis Motor Speedway, there was something, If I, how can I put this, a disconnect, is that fair, MP, between the expectations of the WEC, who thought the Indianapolis Motor Speedway would be paying them lots of money for them to come, and the opposite being true. Uh, that, uh, that actually the Indianapolis Motor Speedway would have required payments for the WCD come. So that didn't happen. We're now into an era where Super Sebring is a thing, or at least it will be when we can get back into the United States. Um, and I think that puts the tin lid on it for quite some little time. I'd love to see um, the WC cars at Indianapolis Motor Speedway, but I don't think that's going to happen whilst they still see the value of that doubleheader event at Sebring International Raceway. Would you disagree, MP? Do not disagree. Okay. Let's go with one final one. Uh, We've got Bonfire of Profanity. Great one. BOP tweeter. Long-time listener, first-time caller. You're welcome, sir, particularly with a uh, handle like that. is the 2024 zero emissions class purely hydrogen or could someone come along with a different genuine zero emissions tech? The answer is the 2024 regulations are completely purely hydrogen fuel cell. Um, I know I've promised a couple of times uh, that we'll have stories on this. I am literally writing it now and trying to get something over the line, uh, which has significant further information on that side of uh, the, the plan. Uh, but the, the plan at the moment is the variety of technical uh, contributors to the regulations, including Red Bull, Advanced Engineering, Advanced Technology, rather, uh, Orica, uh, Plastic Omnium, who are designing the um, the tanks, Green GT, who are designing and building the uh, main powertrain, which leaves the potential OEMs, and I think it's going to be OEM singular in this case, in the first instance, um, would be bringing what is termed the fuel cell stack. And I'm going to um, point you in the direction of a story that's not yet out there, uh, that's been written by our friend and still colleague, uh, but my ex-colleague on Daily Sportscast, Stephen Kilby, um, who has been doing some fine work on this one. I'm actually looking at his story right now and writing around that with uh, an interview with a very senior source uh, in that program. So the answer is no, it's purely and simply fuel cell, but it doesn't stop you from bringing alternatives emission um, tech powertrain because, of course, you can come and ask to go into what they would now like us to call the innovative car uh, slot garage 56 as was with a view to perhaps that tech being you know example to others or to the regulators to see whether or not it can be brought in doesn't stop us from, stop you from doing it does mean that there's not a full set of regulations to to do it against there we go where are we going here where are we going there where are uh, we going let's let's have a quick look at so we have a look at her general sure is there a question uh, you know, we got a little bit of time. Uh, I wouldn't be upset if we had a slightly shorter show this week, so okay. uh, that wouldn't be the worst thing. Let me see. Uh, is there one I could find in Hegeneral that uh, you might want to answer? Hey, I found it from Helgi. Uh, hey. At Rensport underscore Helgi. 
Graham, how could it be that Japanese are able to preserve old school racing, even GT4 Supras, built by different tuning companies, are a bit different in Super Tekiu, and it's very popular, yep. while almost nobody talks about, let's say, German SST, where garage-built cars entered too. Okay, well, look, uh, uh, we've had a bit of a to and fro on Twitter about this question coming forward, so thank you for submitting it for starters. We've said a number of times on Twisk, the weekend sports cars, that we both sort of rue the day that that, that kind of garage spirit has gone away and we've gotten to more homologation. It's tended to come along with um, the... Uh, with the onset of safety being as much of a standard bear as it is now in the in the sport, the, the, the cars are effectively built around dimensions that are built around effectively a safety cell. So there's that aspect to it. It's not to say that there aren't places where you can't still do what you're describing there, Helgi. You've just mentioned two of them. I'll mention uh, at least one more, which is beloved of the, the very bobble hat and Ararak brigade of uh, sports car fans, which is the Brazilian Endurance Championship with some astonishing um, home-built, and I mean that by way of home market, certainly not done in a, you know someone's garage at the side of a house, uh, prototypes that look absolutely amazing. It is absolutely fair to say that the days of that being something that's going to be seen in full-blown international competition, I think, are done. And do I like the fact that that's the case? I truly don't, but I'm a realist not liking it is not going to change it and the only way that's going to change is if somebody shows some form of business model that draws people to an event that is sustainable in terms of the racing efforts that is um how we put this that respects the fact that there is a rule set there and and, and is not going to go in and do what we tend to do with fairly short memories, which is forget the fact that some of these cars that we absolutely love from the past were so utterly dominant that it actually eventually made anything other than the spectacle of them going round and round and round really, really fast, uh, otherwise rather dull. I think there is, oddly enough, MP, one car, and only one car at the moment in international motorsport that respects that spirit. Can you guess what that car is? Hyundai. But it's not. It's the Glickenhaus. Yes. Because right there, what you've got is Jim Glickenhaus and his team, uh, who right now, by the way, are unloading their two cars uh, at Motorland Aragon, one for the, the shakedown of the second car, the other one for the 30-hour test. Uh, they have taken the rule book, and they've done it in their own particular way. They've found the powertrain. It's It's an engine that's been designed bespoke designed uh, for that car um does it tick all the boxes in terms of does it use the absolute ultimate potential performance of that platform in other words can he run it at 1500 horsepower and blow the doors off everybody for three laps before it implodes no he can't um but what he has done i think he's used a bit of that spirit of the privateer but that spirit of let's go and do it our way Let's make this car look like we look something we want it to look like, rather than being forced into that by um, error regulations. And I tend to think 
that is a sign that there is potential there that if that car can come out and be reasonably competitive, that it might encourage others to come forward and have a bit of a crack. I'll say it one more time. I am still in correspondence with another boutique brand that is looking um, carefully at these regulations. Do I think they will come and race? I really don't. But they're still asking questions. And that's really encouraging because that's not a brand that I have ever had correspondence with before we got to the hypercar era. Are there reasons to be sad, even kind of mildly cynical about this new era? There are, without a shadow of a doubt, if what you want is to see his ultimate performance. But if actually what you want is a depth of competition and sustainability of that competition, this is the inevitable end of that road. So, Helgi, I hear what you say, my good friend. Um, I, I can't agree that everything out there is as dire and awful as sometimes some of us traditionalists, and I'm a bit of a traditionalist, say it is. Because you know what? Week in, week out, I go and strap a microphone to my head and have no problem whatsoever um, trying to entertain a worldwide TV audience for four-hour racing, six-hour racing, eight-hour racing, 12-hour racing, 24-hour racing. And I always find something to, uh, to talk about, and our audiences continue to go up. That's all I can really say enjoy where that variety still survives by all means try to find ways of encouraging that variety into higher echelons of the sports um but treasure what we've got as well because what you have got are very clever people in the teams uh, astonishing skills in the drivers that's where the differentiation of performance is coming now it's with the ability to engineer something that is notionally spec to be rather better than the sum of its parts there we go uh let's see i'm just looking through general what else do we have uh daniel summers go got a couple things about stefan rattel do you want to pick that up or does uh we can i mean is this this stefan's comments about gt3 yeah um so this was a can't remember who ran the the interview, but uh, this was Stefan getting a bit grumpy about the prospects of, you know, if the ACO took on GT3 uh, for Le Mans, uh, the world will come to an end, etc., etc. Look, I am not going to be one of those guys that turns around and says that Stefan's been terrifically selfish about things, blah, blah, blah. He may well be right. He may well be completely right. That's the beginning of the end for GT3 because what you then get is those cars, as we've said, time and time and time again. I can remember saying this, MP, when you and I used to share airtime on a different podcast, on a different um, Cat Fancy podcast, yes. That one, yes. That, you know, once you give GT3 manufacturers a platform that is truly uh, has got worth to it internationally – Spa certainly does, Bathurst certainly does, Daytona certainly does, but Le Mans dwarfs the lot of them. Um, Then you then encourage them effectively to design a package that is optimized for that platform. And I think that's where we potentially, in an evolution or so down the line, get to the stage where it starts to get a bit iffy. I I do remember uh, the Spa 24 Hours some years ago, 
where, as I recall, after qualifying, all of the Mercedes MGs were pinged for having non-compliant electronics, as I recall. That didn't happen by accident. Okay, that happened because the, the advantage was being sought. If you've got something that gives you a, a platform that is significantly bigger than that for your brand, the encouragement is there to do more than that. And I, I am concerned that whatever is the determination about the future of GT racing, that they've thought this one through, not just in the here and now because we've only got four or five or six cars in GTE Pro, but four years, five years, ten years down the line, where does that actually take you in terms of your journey with those manufacturers and with the teams that are going to run those cars? I think one of the other things that Stefan is probably worried about, he's had a rough couple of years under the pandemic for a couple of his series. The um, Asian series in particular has suffered because drivers can't move between countries. But the other series that has really suffered is the IGTC, the Intercontinental GT Challenge. I actually happen to like the Intercontinental GT Challenge. It's got two standalone high-quality events at Bathurst and at Spa, and it's got three that I would describe as being developmental at Indianapolis, at Kilami, and Suzuka, where it's a reinvention of a well-established race at Suzuka. Um, I suspect he is extremely concerned about the future of the IGTC should the WEC soak up a significant uh, part of the available factory money um, in the GT3 marketplace. Think about that one for a moment. And the final thing to say is this. I've seen a few comments about the kind of sour grapes and blah, blah, blah. Make no mistake, you know, they've done very well out of GT3, but they've invested a hell of a lot in it as well, including, by the way, one of the best free-to-view uh, streaming platforms anywhere in motorsport, free-to-view. And that's been done, because not because they have to, but because they think... Uh, they can grow the audience for their brand of motorsports. They think that will give them commercial advantage, that it will pay them back with something which I have to say most other international motorsports have been singly unsuccessful with in the last decade or so is we might take the Mickey MP about the GT World Challenges um, ever-growing title, the Fanatec GT World Challenge Europe uh, powered by AWS, but it's got two big brand names attached to its um, it's moniker. It means that they are being commercial and sustainable in a world where we need more commercial sustainability. So whatever happens here, I hope all of the powers at B find themselves able to get around a table and talk about a sustainable plan. I'd love to see a bit more alliancing. I'd love to see a bit more common sense about the way in which calendars are put together. I'd love to see, you know, um, a WC race with maybe a GT World Challenge Europe sprint uh, race on the Saturday. Wouldn't that be cracking? Wouldn't that be fun? And, you know, there's lots of reasons why that might not happen, but I'd like to think that maybe in the brand new world as we, we kind of come blinking out of what's been a hellish time for most people, that maybe some things might be back on the agenda that would have been thought unthinkable two years ago. It's important we keep good people, good teams, good manufacturers, good sponsors, good drivers – good media, good fans in this sport. And the best way to do that is that we all take a step back and wonder whether or not our blinkered view of what we think is right and sustainable actually, you know, stands up in the cold light of day. 
I'm going to recommend that we move to the final category of fun. Uh, but you're fun. the official decider. So no, we do it. We do it. We do it. We do it. Okay. Um, do you want right? Let's have a quick look. All oh, right. This is uh, the Glickenhouse car from the Reverend Texas Dan Cowboy Hatface uh, rocket sailboats. <laughs> At Texan Hombre. That's Ben Keating, isn't it? Come on. It it's is. It's Ben Keating. Yes, it is. Now, this is, this, this is around my description of the Glickenhaus, the first picture we'd seen of the car complete and liveried. Dan's destroying you here. Yep, you're done. You're finished, pal. Yeah, yeah. So, basically, uh, this is because it's basically, it's been painted. Let's put it this way. It's not got any stickers on it, not got anything other on it. Than it's basic paint job, which is very Auto Delta- uh, Alfa Romeo, and uh, what the Reverend Texas Dan Cowboy Hatface Rocket Sailboat is selling us at Texas Hombre. Is this a livery or a paint job? It's a paint job. Can we move on? <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, um, Stephen Ellis says, I'm going to put this one your way. What's the worst prototype you ever watched? I'm going to say ever watched live, and don't you dare say the Daytona prototypes. The Daytona he prototypes? Says. I mean, you, they're not really prototypes, are they? Uh, yeah the, the the anytime you come up with a new formula and it quickly receives the nickname proto turtles you know that you have <laughs> slightly missed the mark so how dare i say look i worked on those i engineered one for a little while and granted it was the prettiest of them all i think the riley but still oh yes uh glorified well, track bay cars if, if if we just put to one side the fact, obviously the answer is the Daytona prototypes. What is the other answer if they're not allowed? Prototype Daytonas? Um, <laughs> I would say SRP2s. Those things just bored me to no end. I mean, they looked... The Piccio. Uh, but the Piccio was fun. That was the clown car of prototypes. I'm talking like the real ones, like the Renard. I should say that the that didn't look too bad. Now, granted, uh, um, that's maybe more P675. But um, yeah, like the Lola, the thing looked ugly. They weren't fast. Um, uh, granted, I know that all these things serve purposes, and there are a lot of drivers and teams that were able to come to life or get their start or blah, blah, blah. But yeah, anytime you say, let's come up with a, a true hand-built, hand-formed sports car, not something based off a production line road vehicle. Anytime you're going to go to that amount of effort and it's just underwhelming to watch, it's really disappointing. It's sad to me because you've taken the time to create a formula that requires high effort and achievement something that the average person can't do most people with a little bit of mechanical aptitude graham can take their road car i'm not saying make it into a full uh imsa alms grand am whatever in the past compliant vehicle but they could take it somewhere have someone install a, a roll cage and safety stuff they could probably do a brake kit upgrade and do some other things and put bigger wheels and tires and bolt on a wing and a hashtag front splitter. And I think a lot of people could do true garage type upgrades to their performance based road car. And again, it might not comply to specific pro racing rules, 
but it might not be too far from ones that do. The average person could not, cannot, whether in this era we're talking about light composites, we're not talking about a carbon chassis, but a honeycomb, but just bend some aluminum and make their own prototype uh, tub and this and that. Like That's so far beyond what the average person could do that if you're going to come up with rules where this is what you're doing, this high achievement thing that is a very rare creation, just to have rules where you go, oh, well, okay, that doesn't really do a whole lot or go super fast or pique my interest too much. That's just where I get sad, Stephen. I'm going to add one, um, and it is the bucking bronco of LMP1 cars, uh, the car that scared the driver so much he literally walked away from them on, and that is the Pescarolo 03. Uh, this is the car that was based on the Aston Martin AMR1, the open-top car that uh, finally killed their LMP1 aspirations. But um, the one of those cars bought by Raul Gert, who owns the Rothko collection, uh, and remodeled uh, uh, way, way, way too late into the Pescarolo 03. And... Uh, by all accounts, and the account we take into account particularly is that of Jean-Christophe Puyon, um, it was just downright dangerous. Um, I only saw the thing at speed briefly, um, and I use the word speed in its most liberal possible um, interpretation, um, and it was taken away. Uh, I, I do remember them taking it out of the garage around to the back of the paddock and heard a muffled shot and we never saw it again. <laughs> oh, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> no, unfortunately, the, the other thing, by the way, and the reason why I really don't like the car is that was the end of Henri Pescarolo um, as a team owner at Le Mans, um, one of my absolute racing heroes. But uh, that was what we might term death of a team by misadventure. <laughs> There okay, we are we going to finish one to uh, one to finish, or maybe two to finish? What do we think? Totally up to you. You pick. I mean, Eric Sheen asks, "What's better, American oh, yeah. pit walls or European garages?" Uh, what do you say? Depends if it's raining. Depends if it's raining. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, uh, they both. You know what? They both have their appeal. Well, okay. Uh, I find, Eric, I find the garage approach to be one of immense comfort. That's It's yep. so, makes life so easy. Always found it a bit anticlimactic, though, because you're there. And you push the car out in some instances. You go straight out on a pit lane. Who knows if someone, depending on wherever, might put up some sort of little barrier you have to go through. Whatever it is, but... I just recall the sense of mounting excitement, pressure, all the th- all those things of having to move the car, some equipment, whatever else, make even if it was just a short trip, the act of having to get the entire team assembled, bring the machine and some of its supporting equipment uh with us and present ourselves on pit lane to then go and 
do whatever it was, practice qualifying race. Just always found that to feel there was something attached to that. Like instead of just rolling up the garage door and the war is there waiting for you, there was a little bit of having to get up uh, onto the battlefield before things started. And I know it, that's it's entirely mental, but just the act of like, okay, there's this thing over there we have to go to. And when we get there, things get very real and we have to snap ourselves out of whatever mindset or, or things we might've been doing before. Just always found that to be a little bit ceremonial, but I also found that it helped shift my, my head from one state to another. There weren't a ton of instances in my career where there were garages right there acting as pit lane. But I do recall the times where that did happen for me. There wasn't that sense. It was, I had to remind myself that, oh, we're kind of here. Pit lane's here. It's ever present. The sounds, the noises, there's movement going on. We're just a few feet away from being part of a live session. I know it's all just mental trickery, but I found the act of having to make that little march was something that really did transfer me from one state to another. So that's why I think the American pit wall approach is one that I've liked, but keep in mind that's also what I'm most familiar with. So not a surprise that it makes the most sense for me. My my counterpoint would be you don't often get really decent coffee machines on American pit walls, but uh, that's 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 another story. Or indeed, um, a readily available bowl of uh, some kind of jelly sweets. That's the other thing you won't find them on a pit wall. You'll only find them in a garage. So there are two reasons there why that well thought, well argued, beautifully delivered argument was just wrong, MP. So we're going to finish with um, Stephen Gates. <laughs> Stephen Gates says, which magic moment in a sports car race, either as a spectator or in a professional capacity, would you like to revisit for just five minutes? Hashtag me personally would be Le Mans 2015, Arnage, Orange Sky, Dusk Approaching. Nothing has come pl- close to being that perfect at a circuit. I might go back to, I don't recall exactly if it was 1986 or 1987, but seeing IMSA GTP cars, hearing GTP cars on my own. I'd been to many IMSA races beforehand as a younger lad with my parents, my dad, basically. This was the first time I would have driven to an event on my own, been solely in charge of what I did, uh, what I saw, what I heard wandering around freely. It's amazing with having a driver's license in a, in a $2 uh, vehicle to drive can do for one's uh, liberty and perspective on life. But this is really something that boy, if I could go back just the, the, Closing my eyes, Stephen, and hearing the Jaguar V12 screaming by and the wailing Mazda Camel Lights cars and the 962s and the Turbo Flutter and uh, Turbo 4s that are super angry and just the whole, wow, theater of the mind. That, that's so heavily burned into everything that I do today and have done since then 
and my love for audio, the sound of racing vehicles doing what they do. It wasn't created at that Laguna, whatever year it was, GTP weekend, but boy, it was seated heavily and I still draw from that because I can still hear it. And that group 44 V12 sounded nothing like the TWR Jags that would follow uh, from 88 onward over here and nothing like nothing like any other Jag V12 engined vehicles. It was just a, such a unique sound that that little slice of uniqueness, Graham, ugh, sustains me forever. So I'd go back with much better audio recording equipment than the little boom box that I brought back then with a cassette tape and hit record, which I still have that cassette tape and I posted on the podcast 900 episodes ago or whatever, but I'd probably Steven just go back, sit, uh, track side with far better audio recording equipment, close my eyes and then just giggle like a fool because wow, what an impression it made on me. That's beautiful. Um, for me, I, I, you're luckier than I am when, when we can go back racing. You do go trackside, I don't. So my trackside moments are few and far between, certainly in the last decade or more. So if I had to go back, I'd be going back to the mid-1990s and when I used to spend time trackside with my son. Um, wow. who's obviously he's away, he's away and he's married and you know he still goes racing but so I pass across at racetracks seldom now um, but it was that it was just that journey for both of us really learning about uh, at that stage BPR and the GT1 era uh, which was our thing at that particular time and working out what was going on there of course no access really to the paddock other than regular fan access at that point whatsoever uh, but it was that, it was that sense of adventure, really, um, completely different uh, to what I'd been kind of watching to that point. It'd been really kind of sort of touring car and Formula One. And that was where the bug really bit. And uh, as you have gathered from the fact that we're co-presenting this podcast, it bit pretty hard. Uh, more recently, um, Le Mans Classic. And sitting down at Tete Rouge and watching the um, parade, albeit fairly competitive parade, of what were termed the Global Endurance Legends. These are the cars that will be seeing race uh, in support of Le Mans 24 Hours. And it was basically just a parade of my professional racing life. And I absolutely loved it. Everything from kind of the early uh, GT1s through to the LMP 900s, the LMP ones, um, Toyota GT one up there, Panos up there, Audi R8, fantastic. And you know, I can see that that is an era we're coming into for historic racing, and I th I think that's what I'm going to enjoy into my dotage. To be honest with you, um, so yeah, it's great to remember, isn't it? Those those moments for me, it's it's long long been about the cars and the people. And they're just two moments that uh, I'll give you. The one in particular with my lad in the tipping rain at Silverstone, start, finish straight, grandstand, and watching the way that Alex Zanardi 
tiptoed his Lotus Esprit through the puddles, humbling GT1 spec cars. This was not a GT1 spec car. Uh, team manager, by the way, that uh, that day, George Harrachapel. Uh, uh, George and I had a very happy 20 minutes over a cup of coffee remembering that day from his perspective, me telling him my perspective of it. And I learned a lot about that. And before we say, uh, you know, goodnight, goodbye from this one, uh, take a moment to remember Alex Anardi on his road to recovery um, because there's a man that deserves better luck than he's had over the last uh, couple of three months, MP. Ain't that the truth? Ruth, take us home, my friend. Oh, I will indeed. Uh, well, as we get close to going back racing again, with little or no help from the UK and French government, thank you very much, guys, for all your contribution to the current hell we're in. Um, this has been the Weekend Sports Cars, brought to you, as always, with thanks to Cooper Tyres, to the Justice Brothers, and to TorontoMotorsports.com. He's exhausted. It's indie month. I'm pretty exhausted. It's uh, in between the LMS and WEC. Uh, We will see you and hear from you next week.